Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Frantic Rabbity Burst Edition. It's Wednesday, December 13th, 2017. On today's show, I, Tanya, is the new indie movie. It retells the story of Tanya Harding, the Olympic skater, whose boyfriend kneecapped her toughest rival. Uh, The film looks behind the trash TV veneer to the surprise, the human beings underneath. And then The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel is the new Amazon streamer. It's from Amy Sherman Palladino, who you may know as the creator of the beloved Gilmore Girls. This one's terrific, too. And finally, a New Yorker short story of all things goes viral. We discuss Cat Person. Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hello, Steve. And of course, uh, Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Uh, Hey, Steven. Dig right in, right? Sure, dig away. I, Tanya, is a very black comedy about the story behind the 1994 attack on the figure skater Nancy Kerrigan. It stars Margot Robbie as Tanya Harding, Kerrigan's rival, and Allison Janney as her mother. It's told in a semi-mockumentary style, and it is meant to trouble and subtilize our feelings about what was a tabloid TV story. Uh, let's listen to a clip. Does someone want to just tell me to my face, you're never going to give me the scores I deserve? This is how it's done. Some of these girls have paid their dues. I don't give a I outskated them today. We also judge on presentation. Well, you know what? If you can come up with $5,000 for a costume for me, then I won't have to make one. Till then, just stay out of my face. Maybe you're just not as good as you think. Maybe you should pick another sport. Suck my Dana, I think that that's a, that's a wonderfully selected clip. It gets at what the essence of this movie really is, which is that Nancy Kerrigan, her rival, was a, perceived as a princess. The movie suggests that she wasn't one, but we, she was sold as kind of the platonic ideal of an Olympic figure skater, this Disney, you know, figure out of a Disney, uh, animated Disney feature, whereas Tanya Harding was, you know, a child of the working class or the lower middle white working class uh, whose mother was a, you know, driving, unrelentingly nasty and driving force in her life. She didn't present. She was a brilliant skating athlete, but she didn't present as a Disney princess. And she was uh, penalized for it repeatedly. This is an incredibly sympathetic portrayal of someone who became almost a unique American villain. What did you think of the movie? Uh, I mean, the, the more distance I get from this movie, I guess I saw it two or three days ago now. 
I, I don't know what to think of it, and I want you guys to help me decide what to think of it. I mean, I think we can all agree that it's it's great fun to watch. I mean, you can kind of hear that in that scene. It's full of these kind of salty exchanges, and it has all this great music of the era. So you're constantly hearing, you know, some dire straits or fog hat hit or something as she's maniacally <laughs> skating around and being beaten by her mother. And it's just it's this very full-on onslaught of kind of comedy and grim marital abuse and uh, and athletic triumph and it all comes at you really fast and is kind of enjoyable. But then I came out of it sort of feeling like there were a couple of big pieces missing. And I think one of the biggest pieces is Nancy Kerrigan. She's a ghost in this movie, basically. And I know it's a movie about Tanya Harding and her relationship with her husband and these thugs that the movie argues at least he hired without her knowledge to, to kneecap Nancy Kerrigan. But she's such a ghostly figure who never speaks a line and is only kind of seen in a, a couple of flashback shots in the distance. that Sorry, you don't. she does speak one line. Why? <laughs> right, Why? The famous Nancy Kerrigan yeah, clip. That's her only line. Of her of her in the hallway right after the uh, the, the incident. Um, but I don't know. Something about the way that she's made this distant figure doesn't make it that, that clear what's at stake in the competition between them, which even before this, the incident happened, as I remember, Julia, you'll remember better than me because I think you followed this early 90s girl figure skating world more than me. But they were already kind of perceived as these rivals and stylistic um, opposites and so forth. And I don't know, I guess I thought the movie got so interested in the intrigue that it didn't mm-hmm. quite explore that. And then I guess my other question would be, you know, the movie that this reminds me of stylistically a little bit is The Big Short from a few years mm-hmm. ago. It's got directed dress to the camera. It's got that same sort of sense that everybody's story might be off and you don't know whether the which whose contradictory details to believe in the retellings of the story. It's got Margot Robbie. And it's got Margot Robbie in a in a central and very funny role. And she's great. She's really great as Tanya Harding, although arguably miscast because she's a little too graceful and beautiful. She looks more like Nancy Kerrigan in, in her style than Tanya Harding. And they do some incredible things with digital face reconstruction where it looks like she's doing these skating stunts that she can't possibly be doing. Although she, she did, did learn lot. to skate. Yeah. I think she did learn to skate very well. But not the axles, Not the though. axles. Anyway, so it's got all this stuff it's shoving in your face, and it's all kind of pleasurable. But then I sort of walked out feeling a little bit like I was mm. had been manipulated or it was a bit morally empty or something. Did either of yeah. you have that impression? I, I was mean, hoping I- you guys would sort these questions <laughs> out. Steve. <laughs> yeah, no, why don't you go first, Steve? I mean, I, as Dana notes, I grew up in Massachusetts. I was like in my early teens during all of this drama. Uh, Nancy Kerrigan was also from this South Shore of Boston. She was from Stoneham. Uh, so she was kind of like a hometown hero when all this was happening. And both this movie and some previous coverage has made me think differently about their rivalry than I think I did when I was 13. Um, but however much sympathy this movie makes you have for Tanya Harding, I still think it has to take into account that like a woman was walking down a hall and some guys broke her knees with a club <laughs> like that. That really gets sidelined in this movie in a way to, I think, make the characters more sympathetic. Hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, so uh, I I really, really like this movie. I will hasten to add I saw it in the context of a film festival, which I think in a good way, great inflates. There's a kind of communal goodwill. And especially if a movie is funny, the crowd gets behind it. You know, you're you're watching it a month or so before everyone else does. You feel privileged, uh, kind of conspiratorial glee to begin with. Like all that worked very much in favor of this movie, which I do think uh, on a first pass is very, very, very funny. Um, and secondly is supremely well performed i mean i i we we 
we cannot go a minute longer without saying that Allison Janney almost steals the movie, though what prevents her from doing that is I think uh, Margot Robbie is terrific in this film. She's badly miscast at least in a superficial way. I mean, she is arguably one of the most, you know, obviously beautiful women in uh, film today, playing someone wh- whose whole point of Tanya Har- Harding's image is that she w- is that she wasn't. She wasn't princessy or feminine uh, or fetching in the way that Margot Robbie is. Um, uh, and I, I hope I'm not sounding sexist. I mean, this is the very premise, both of Margot Robbie's career, right, and of uh, Tanya Harding's, you know, supposed image problem. So that was a daring bit of casting, but I think Margot Robbie really pulls it off. I mean, she's, she's, you know, it's filmed as a semi-mockumentary with with contemporary interviews with with Margot Robbie as Tanya Harding now, looking back on this as a misunderstood series of of events in in her life and in American sort of public life, and she's so brutalized and toughened. Um, and and you believe her as that, which is improbable coming from that actress. But she she's a terrific actress. She pulls it off completely. Secondly, Allison Janney as her mother is phenomenal. I mean, the the the, the whole way in which Tanya Harding's story gets humanized is via the degree of of physical and psychological abuse she withstood at the hands of this mother, who's just an absolute heart of total blackness. And Janney brings humor and specificity to that uh in a way that i think animates the whole movie i mean it's sort of about that more than anything like a person who's being both made and destroyed simultaneously by a driven driving but also deeply self-hating and rivalrous parent and that that to me is a complete success now the absence of nancy kerrigan is a really interesting thing like you can go either way with it because in a way it's not it's not it's not meant to humanize Nancy Kerrigan. It's not meant to make the actual act itself seem less brutal or capricious or or incredibly selfish and fucked up. It, it's just not a movie built around telling that part of the story. It's really about how people living in this rarefied, intense, scrutinized bubble end up doing something incredibly stupid, in part because some of them are really stupid, but in part because poor Tanya Harding is the middle of this maelstrom over which she has no control. My one issue with the movie is that in emphasizing the amount of physical abuse she took from her mother and her husband, we, I think, by about halfway or three quarters of the way through the film, become slightly wearied and a little bit almost desensitized to it. it it's it's surely a problem of repetition. It's like a classic second act screenplay play problem that a lot of what just happens in the middle third of the movie is a little bit drawn out and repetitive. But then it it gets it gets wind in its sails for the final third. I thought, and at the end of the day, I think it's a terrific movie and is deserving the recognition that it's getting. I mean, I think the violence question, just to take that piece first, is really interesting. Like you said, Dana, this is so fun to watch. It's a movie in which this talented young athlete and woman gets like beat six ways to Sunday in almost every other scene. And yet, tonally, it is fun. Which is Well, a lot of times the fog hat or whatever catchy radio theme it is, is playing along with the beating sequences. And I'm not trying to say that, you know, that they're romanticizing abuse or anything like that. And in fact, there's a suggestion that she kind of gives back during these sessions and that she's kind of fighting back as best she can. But yeah, the an exhilarating movie about someone being beaten by their mother and husband almost every day. That's there's something about that that leaves me feeling a little odd. Yeah, I've spent so much time since I saw this movie thinking about what my relationship was to Tanya and Nancy when I was in my early teens and feeling 
really dismayed at my teen self and kind of icked out at my teen self that I didn't understand the broader, I don't know, class context, athletic context, like that someone could have the kind of upbringing that Tonya Harding had that might result in this set of events in the way that it did. I really just perceived her as like just so dumb. Like how did it, whatever, whatever she knew, whenever she knew it, like how could she possibly have gotten mixed up in this thing that made so little sense for anybody? Um, and I, I do still feel that way. And that's one of the things of growing up, you get a broader perspective of the world and you see things a little bit differently. But I also think it's worth noting that the movie on reflection does kind of oversimplify what the dynamic between the two of them was and what it signified if you were a big watcher of figure skating at the time. You know, so the movie very sympathetically lays out that tragedy, that tragic side of the story. And, and, you know, I didn't consider that side of the story fully when I was a tween who was obsessed with these two skaters. Like, at the time, part of why my sister and I were so into Nancy Kerrigan, so one for one, she was from Boston, the Boston area. Two, she was tall. She was, like, much taller than the other skaters, which I loved. Like, that made me feel like, ooh, a tall, tall girl makes good. Love a story <laughs> like that. Um, number three, in looking – in watching them skate in the early 90s, like, aesthetically – Nancy Kerrigan was the outlier, not Tonya Harding. Like the the prevailing, and this is a comment on costumes, but it, that is part of what skating is about. Like Tonya Harding's costumes didn't seem homemade or trashy or unusual compared to what all the other girls were wearing. In my view, they all of the costumes looked insane and trashy and full of like that weird nude taupe and crazy flounces. And, you know, just like the aesthetic was very 80s. And Nancy Kerrigan, through I, I don't know what machination, um, her costumes were famously designed by Vera Wang and they were very minimalist, like the, the kind of Calvin Klein 90s minimalism that was on the rise at that time. She somehow adopted before the rest of the figure skaters. So she always was very tall and would wear these somewhat severe white or black costumes with very little adornment and she looked really different and she looked like she was presenting a different aesthetic of how to be an elegant woman which is you could be tall strong and not trying to be like a puffy princess just try to be kind of an elegant clean beautiful line uh and that was what was appealing to me about her you know the other thing is she her dad was a welder like she was also basically working class i mean i think her background was nowhere near as horrible and terrifying as Tonya Harding's was. But the story in the movie is very oversimplified in a way that also left me feeling a little strange. I see. I didn't, I miss, I read, I read it completely differently and maybe misread it, but I really saw the movie as completely agnostic on whatever the intrinsic class status or character of Nancy Kerrigan was. It was about, in fact, somewhat self-consciously about how the public projects enormous amounts of emotions and expectations onto these people based on pretty superficial appearances and demands of them in retrograde and sexist ways that they conform to certain gender stereotypes. And it was no fault of Nancy Kerrigan's that she conformed to that and was commercialized you know appropriately or inappropriately. But but the movie's not about that. It's not it's 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 not it's not it's not meant to it's not meant to tell her story in any way, shape, or form, only in that she became a public symbol of everything Tanya Harding wasn't. And the movie is actually pretty careful to say this is about p- public symbolism as it impacted Tanya Harding, whose story we're going to tell. Like, I just didn't see it as somehow slighting the existence of this other person. Um, it was really about how they all became props in an extremely massively oversimplified but also symbolically overloaded punch and judy show that ended with 
essentially everyone whose story we see all of their lives completely destroyed. Yeah, I'm not saying the movie should have been twice as long because Nancy Kerrigan is from Stoneham and I liked her. I'm just saying that <laughs> the the I think Dana's point that the movie kind of lets Tonya Harding off the hook because she was a victim of so many things. She was a mm-hmm. victim of her upbringing, her husband, and our collective scorn once it became public what she'd done, that it doesn't it doesn't really grapple in any serious way with potential culpability within that mm-hmm. context. And, no, like, and it lets it lets the gravity of what happened off the hook, whatever her involvement in it was. I think in a way by making Nancy Kerrigan this person that you only sort of see like in the background of a TV shot once in a while or in this basically in the in the movie's language, almost mockable moment of screaming why, why in the famous clip in the corridor by reducing her story to only that, I mean, I don't need her to emerge as a sympathetic, well-rounded character who has an equal amount of coverage in a movie called I, Tanya. It's not I, Nancy. But the whole reason we have a movie, the whole reason we care about the Tanya Harding scandal is because some goons broke a woman's knees in a hallway. And so for mm-hmm. that to yep. be sort of pushed off to the side even makes the like moral center of the story seem kind of insta- mm-hmm. unstable. Yeah. To be clear, there's that one other scene where Tanya averts that she and Nancy Kerrigan were friends on the road and they were kind of both, you know, party girls who enjoyed their young career together and and the, just the weight of that crime, which is a crazy crime. Like, here's this other yes. woman, whatever her background, whatever you think of her, who's been working, at least on the ice, just as hard to try to achieve whatever she can achieve. And basically, I think the movie is spinning a ton of plates and it spins them really well. And if you're interested in this story at all, you should go see it because it's a kind of fascinating tonal piece. And it's just it is, despite all the violence, a ton of fun to watch. All the performances are delivered with, like, so much relish. Um, mm. But I'm not, I think I have the same feeling that three or four days later, all the plates mm. kind of fall on the floor. Ah, it's been a couple of months since I saw it. I still love it. Uh, Janie is doing Nobel-worthy work in this movie. And my final word will just be that, this, that, that violence is such a way of life for these people, especially her mother and her husband, that... Um, doing something as grotesque as kneecapping Nancy Kerrigan for them was not beyond the pale. And that is what the movie's about. It's it's showing you how that could be the case. Anyway, um, I, Tanya, go check it out. Tell us uh, what you thought of it. Is it um, apologism for uh, goon-like behavior or a fun satire? I think it's both probably. But anyway, moving on. All right, now's the moment in our show where we do our business. I'm sure we have some, don't we, Julia? Yeah. First up, I want to tell our listeners about a great Slate show. Most of you are probably aware of Slate's Hang Up and Listen, an incredibly unique and excellent sports show. Uh, But if you are not, if you're a newcomer to our show, if you aren't familiar with all of the great stalwarts of the Slate podcast stable, give Hang Up and Listen a try. It is the smartest conversation anywhere about sports. It's hosted by Josh Levine and Stefan Fatsis, two of the most delightful conversationalists I know. Basically, you just get to hang out with Josh Levine for an hour every week, which I strongly recommend as someone who gets to do that even more often as someone who works with him. Um, uh, and it's also, it's a little bit of a format shift. They gab in the way that we gab, but they also bring in great interviews. They interviewed Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, the NBA player who protested the national anthem decades before Colin Kaepernick. They talked to Ice Cube about his love of the Los Angeles Lakers. Uh, They have experiments. They have fun. They have whimsy watch. uh, And as prime sports season gets underway, it's a good time to bump, hang up, and listen in your feed. 
Subscribe to get a new episode every Monday. Also, last call for our yearly call-in show. You've only got a day left to submit questions. So if you have questions you want to ask me or Dana or Steve, leave us a message at 929-266-4914. In our Slate Plus segment today, we will be discussing productivity systems and to-do lists. In last week's Slate Plus segment, What's in Your Bag? I made passing reference to my patented two-notebook to-do list system and got, I think, like six or seven emails from people being like, tell us about your to-do list system. I'm sorry to report that that was like an in-joke with myself about to-do list systems, and I do not have a uh, getting things done style panacea for you all. Nevertheless, we will discuss to-do lists and systems in today's Slate Plus episode. To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus is our membership program and is a great way to support Slate and the work we do. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing the Culture Gab Fest and your other favorite Slate shows. And of course, in return, you'll get extended ad-free versions of this show and other great Slate shows and a ton of other great benefits. So if you'd like to support the Culture Gab Fest, go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. All right, back to it. The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel is the new Amazon streamer. It's from uh, show creator, showrunner uh, Amy Sherman Palladino, uh, best known for the beloved Gilmore Girls. This one stars Rachel Brosnahan as a sort of kind of Joan Rivers style comedian in New York City in the 1950s, breaking out of her expected role in life, that of a supportive Jewish housewife and mother, to become a Greenwich Village open mic troublemaker and eventually quite a bit more, I imagine. Anyway, let's listen to a clip. So my life completely fell apart today. Did I mention that my husband left me? Woohoo! Okay. All right, but did I mention that he left me for his secretary? Mm-hmm. She's 21 and dumb as a Brillo pad. And, and I'm not naive. I know that men like stupid girls, right? Uh, but I thought Joel wanted more than stupid. I thought he wanted spontaneity and wit. I thought he wanted to be challenged. You know what I mean? Uh, you two are going to be together forever. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you this much. I was a great wife. I was fun. I planned theme nights. I dressed in costumes. I gave him kids, a boy and a girl. And yes, our little girl is looking more and more like Winston Churchill every day, you know, with a big Yalta head. But that's not a reason to leave, right? I loved him. And I showed him I loved him. All that shit they say about Jewish girls in the bedroom... Not true. There are French whores standing around the Marais district saying, did you hear what Mitch did to Joe's balls yesterday? All right. Well, uh, joining us to talk about the mar- marvelous Mrs. Maisel is Willa Paskin, Slate's TV critic. Willa, welcome back to the show. Hi, guys. Hello. Hey. So um, th- a lot of, if you were just to describe this show, I should let me put it this way. A friend of mine did describe this show to me. And he said, you're never going to believe it. I love it, right? You sort of lay out all the elements and you think, God, I just, no part of me is captivated by, you know, uh, the thought of this television show. In its execution, it's extra- it's really extraordinarily well done, I think. And um, what what do you make of it? I really like this show. Um, basically, I, I describe the show as being like, um, this is really blunt shorthand, as being like fun but not stupid. Yeah. And I'm in the market for that all the time these days. Like, where it's yeah. just like, basically, it's very enjoyable. It has, it's it's about some interesting things. It's set in an interesting moment. It has some really good and fun performances, but it has a lot of swing. Like, it's, it goes down easy. I've I've watched like six episodes of it, which is a lot more than I watch <laughs> some of these things. So that's one barometer. 
Well, it looks really incredible, too. And Willie, you talk about this in your review. Some, In some ways, the period setting is a little bit canned feeling, like it's so beautiful and all the street scenes are so perfectly 50s-ized in their details and the costumes are incredible. So it has this sumptuous visual luxury and a really great color palette of sort of like these bright 50s pastels and stuff. But it doesn't feel, I mean, it doesn't feel aged, you know. It does sort of feel like it's all shot and perfectly recreated in a studio. I mean, it's very easy to imagine a version of the show that, is much more trying to be like what we think of as a prestige drama, right? It's a period piece set like almost exactly at the time that Mad Men begins um, about a woman whose life totally like falls out from underneath her who then is trying to get into comedy, which has become, and we can maybe talk about this, like sort of a locus of all our deep thoughts and angst and truth telling like in our contemporary moment. And I think it really does not go in that direction. Like, it doesn't want to be gritty. It doesn't want to be grimy. It doesn't want you to smell New York like it's the deuce or something like that. It it wants to sort of have, like, the uh, the pop of, like, the pajama game or something. Um, and And I loved that. Yeah, I watched the first episode having read nothing about it and uh, did not know that it was an Amy Sherman Palladino joint, <laughs> which was an amazing way to watch it. Like, I unfortunately, you guys can no longer go out and watch it that way, dear listeners, because of this conversation. But um, I watched the whole thing. and was kind of like, what is this? I don't know how to file it away. It's a little bit like Mad Men. It's a little bit like the Rachel Menken character from Mad Men, like what she did after she stopped hanging out with Don Draper. Like, not quite, but there's some kind of department store things. There's some, like, basically, what's it like to be pretty rich and Jewish at this moment in New York. Um, and and so I was like trying to process it. I was like, it's like Mad Men, but women, but comedy, but Rachel Mencken, but funny. But who are all these? We keep spending so much time with these bit players on the sides. Like, how big is this world going to get? What is happening here? And then I saw Amy Sherman Palladino's name at the end and was like, oh, OK. We got all the Amy Sherman Palladino staples. We've got a very quirky, slightly cartoon, slightly unreal, but very closely realized uh, like world that is in the tone of like a vivacious musical comedy that's kind of bright and bold and full of pathos, but not realism pathos, but that has true emotional undercurrents. You've got like a cast of quirky characters. You've got a real focus on the relationship between grownups and their parents, which Amy Sherman Palladino is obsessed with. She loves like intergenerational like dames and their moms. All of her shows have that in it. Uh, and then you've got at the core this heroine who is fast talking and funny and charming and sort of kind of narcissistic and a bit of a jerk too, but pulls it off with charm anyway, which is also at the core of most Amy Sherman Palladino shows. And the one problem I have with this is that Basically, this is a show that requires you to believe that a really snappy Amy Sherman Palladino monologue counts as stand-up comedy, <laughs> and it, like, does not. Like, Yeah, I agree. This is a big problem for me is that her monologues at the mic are not that funny. Actually, there were a couple good jokes in the one that we just heard, but the idea that she is this sensation such that, for example, the manager of this comedy club that she accidentally drunkenly performs at and gets arrested at suddenly decides, it's my life's dream to manage this comedian. You don't see that kind of talent in her at the mic. Mm. And it's not because Rachel Brosnahan isn't a hugely appealing performer. She really is. But... That part of the show seems strangely underwritten and overconfident in its mm-hmm. ability to charm. Yeah. Can I can I defend the show very quickly on that score? The 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 woman who ends up managing her says, I've seen talent like this once before, Mort Saul. What the what what um 
what uh, Maisel, the character Maisel is doing at the microphone is not that different from what Mort Saul did, nor for that matter what Lenny Bruce did, who's a character on the uh, in the show. Somewhat ludicrously. Somewhat. Saw, somewhat <laughs> ludicrously, but 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 my point only in being- In a very that, biopic, like, hello, Lenny Bruce, it is you, Lenny what Bruce. Was happening, I, what was I hap- happened to be on the fringes of the comedy scene. <laughs> what was happening in the Sorry. 1950s comedy scene in Greenwich Village was ex- was sort of exactly what they're depicting, which was a very freeform, highly personalized, uh, profane style of comedy. And that was the that was the sort of defining feature of it. Not that the jokes were sharp or especially funny. Like if you go back and look at YouTube archival stuff of Lenny Bruce, man's actually not that good a stand-up comedian. He's doing this very what then seemed like mind-blowing boundary baking comedy without being like I hate to say it, like especially funny. True, also weren't all. But I think. I actually think there's a lot of stuff going on here, and some of it is just what you said, Steve, but some of it is actually about how much the show is trying to speak to right now. I, I think that mm. the truth is that you're right that her comedy is not super sharp I, always. Um, I think there's a, some sequences later in the season. There's a, there's a sort of crash episode where they sort of like at the beginning have her basically sharpen up her tight 10 that makes you actually sort of think Amy Sherman Palladino like could write jokes if she really had to but I think she's aware that that's not her forte so she's like basically created this drama about a stand-up and like is envisioning these I mean is envisioning these monologues as dramatic monologues that are funny which is basically how she writes anyway and that's kind of how she's doing them and she's not like trying to kill herself to make it like how a stand-up comic would sound because I think she basically couldn't necessarily do that. Um, but I think also it's like that comedy has to work in this way where it looks like something that sort of seems like it would be happening in the 1950s, but actually is working right now in a time that is not the 1950s. And that is that's um, that's like a hard yeah. thing to balance. Yeah. And I think and so I think what ends up happening um, in those monologues is that they end up being really about feminism in a way that some of the other uh, beats in the show are not like quite as much about feminism. So she ends up going on to give this speech that basically is about whether or not she should have had kids and like why does everyone think um, women should have kids at the jazz club that felt to me like just an Amy Sherman Palladino like thought bubble. Amy Sherman Palladino does not have children of her own and not actually the thought bubble of this character who has like two kids at home that she's barely paying any attention to. Um, and then like later on, she sort of in the climax of the show, she sort of does a whole speech about like why women are constantly giving each other a hard time about the way that they should be. And some of this doesn't I don't know if this all works like as comedy, but it sort of felt like it's where it, it's very connected to our understanding of what comics are now, which is like as these truth tellers and these like, sages who are can like speak to the muck of our feelings to capture something really essential. And that was actually starting in the 50s. Like that's Mort Saul, that's Lenny Bruce, like this idea of the comedi- the comics who aren't Borscht Belt comics, who aren't just like telling jokes that anyone can tell. They're telling something about their unique human experience that we can all sort of recognize. And and like so, I think it's like that's what try- she's trying to do mm. two of at once. Yes, right. I and I and I should say I the the slight uncanniness of those comedic monologues and not quite buying that she actually is this once in a generation laugh riot talent. I still watch six episodes of the show. Like it like that is an incredibly difficult needle to thread and it's basically working. But I just it all became much easier to swallow when I was like, right, I'm buying into this world where that's a 
where that is a community. This is monologue. not a super realistic world. Yeah, you yeah. have to accept a lot of anachronism, including in the dialogue. There are constantly little things being thrown out. It is what it is, like things that nobody said. Yeah, or like talking about drama as a noun, like so much drama. And it's like, no, 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 that doesn't make any sense. But so it doesn't have that kind of madman feeling. I mean, I think in my head, there's this other version of the show that's like Mad Men, but about the dawn of Joan Rivers, <laughs> which would also be great. And I bet those jokes wouldn't work at all now. They'd be, or, or who knows, but that, that's sort of more... Um, that is less of this kind of Busby Berkeley wonderland. And I mean, it is also interesting. And I think to me, like the actual biggest flaw of the show is like the sort of bubbliness of the Maisel character, the Midge character is so like Joan Rivers, like came up in a hard world where like it was hard to be a stand up comic. And she was making all these jokes about like when you're 30 and you're a single lady, like they just toss you in the garbage, you know, and, and like as opposed to being a man, all this stuff. And she had Midge Maisel has the like insane confidence of an Amy Sherman Palladino character where like it doesn't you're like, why are you so confident? Like you are unbearable almost except I love you like there's there's whole sequences further on in further episodes where like she's she's sort of um she's a little scared about going on stage or she's giving these long jokes at parties and you're like I'm sorry you think it's normal and, and and in the show they're like everyone at the party just stops talking and listens to her talk for 30 minutes <laughs> well, that like really, she's that yeah. charming what about the political rally there's a scene where Jane Jacobs <laughs> oh is talking in Washington Square Park about the Robert Moses freeway and trying to save lower New York which she succeeded in doing and it's this big you know political rally and for, for no reason Midge just wanders in and gets invited to speak and everyone's all spellbound and she's like I know nothing but she's somehow so charming at this rally yes all of this stuff is like, this is part of the buying in. Um, and I think is a little bit like you could imagine someone doing a little more justice to like the difficulty of her life. Um, but I, the thing that I, I sort of like about the performance that I, that Rachel Brosnahan, um, Brosnahan's performance so much is that she, she's only seems like a real person on stage, kind of. Like she has this fakery about her off stage that I, like, uh, I think it's a choice where it's like she's always looking at other people to look at her. She's the person who's like smiling nicely to herself when no one's looking at her in the restaurant. You know, like she comes in and she like makes sure everything is always perfect. And then on stage is the only place where you suddenly are like, oh, you're like kind of drunk and you're kind of sloppy and like you're having your you're having a real thing. Like you can only be real when it is your and when it's this different kind of performance. That's so interesting. Right. There's even a moment where it depicts her like hiding her beauty regimen from her husband. Which her mother also does. Which her mother her also does. That the, that the whole, even in your most intimate space, you are performing your womanhood all the time. And that being on stage is a way to not be performing it. It's just that then what's underneath is, an, is an, a charmingly charmless or charmlessly charming Amy Sherman Palladino character who's very self-entranced despite being kind of a bad person. I didn't know that Amy Sherman Palladino doesn't have her own children, but something that bothered me in this show is a really common thing to shows from a less enlightened era about kind of family life, which is that the children are complete props. And that really, really drove me crazy. I mean, literally, they're just, they're, they're there to be quiet Right. And sort of symbolize the fact that they are children. And then occasionally they're needed to throw a tantrum to prove that children throw tantrums. But there's no sense at all that they have needs or subjectivity or that it matters how they're being affected by all of this craziness in their midst and their father leaving and they're moving in with their grandparents. And I don't know. I mean, I don't need it to be a psychologically realist portrait of her three year old son. But the, the children as props thing needs to change for me to have much patience with this show. I, and I completely agree that the older generations are fantastic. And I just wanted to 
call out Kevin Pollack and Tony Shalhoub as the two fathers, her mm-hmm. father and the father of her husband, Joel. They're hilarious. I mean, talk about Borscht Belt. They're just these hilarious old Jewish guys and their scenes together are brilliant, especially the ones that take place in this beautifully rendered garment factory where the Kevin Pollack character works. I, I would keep watching just for those guys. Mm. All right. Well, um, uh, anyway, Willa, thank you so much for coming on our show to talk about it. Always a total pleasure. Thank you. All right. Well, a very uh, peculiar and unexpected thing has happened. A short story from the December 11th issue of the New Yorker magazine went viral in, in part to a tweet and a headline and a photo, but also the intrinsic quality of the story itself, which is it's a remarkable piece of short fiction. The story is Cat Person by Kristen Rupenian. And it tells the story of a brief relationship between two people, Margo, a college sophomore, and Robert, um, a slightly older man of uh, indeterminate age, though we eventually find out. And it tells uh, tells the story. They're very short, very fragile, and very unsuccessful relationship. They begin a fragile relationship that begins in texting and ends in dot, 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 dot. We will discuss first. Let's listen to an excerpt of the story being read by its author. He kissed her then on the lips, for real. He came for her in a kind of lunging motion and practically poured his tongue down her throat. It was a terrible kiss. Shockingly bad. Marco had trouble believing that a grown man could possibly be so bad at kissing. It seemed awful, yet it somehow also gave her that tender feeling toward him again, the sense that even though he was older than her, she knew something he didn't. When he was done kissing her, he took her hand firmly and led her to a different bar, where there were pool tables and pinball machines and sawdust on the floor and no one checking IDs at the door. In one of the booths, she saw the grad student who'd been her English TA her freshman year. Should I get you a vodka soda? Robert asked, which she thought was maybe supposed to be a joke about the kind of drink college girls liked, though she'd never had a vodka soda. She actually was a little anxious about what to order. At the places she went to, they only carted people at the bar, so the kids who were 21 or had good fake IDs usually brought pitchers of PBR or Bud Light back to share with the others. She wasn't sure if those brands were ones that Robert would make fun of, so instead of specifying, she said, I'll just have a beer. Julia, there is so much to discuss here. Um, The intrinsic merits of the story, which strikes me as totally remarkable, uh, the virality of it, why that happened, the fate of short fiction in an age of digital age, which everyone thought was essentially a a kind of a moot question. No one really thought, uh, to my knowledge, of how uh, social media would interact with short fiction, but now we all suddenly are. But, But let's begin at the beginning, the story. What did you make of it? It's a really good story. I mean, it's it's we can get into the mega virality of the piece a little later, but um, it's a story about flirtation and how you are uncertain about how much you like someone as you get to know them and how the little bits of information you find out about them keep rearranging themselves in your mind into a portrait that's either alluring or not. And you're kind of figuring out if you like them and figuring out if they like you and and it's a very deft portrait of that initial moment in any relationship and how it happens technologically at this particular moment. And then it evolves into a story about bad sex and why you might end up having it and kind of gender dynamics and power and all sorts of things that are incredibly topical at the moment, which I think is part of why the story has gone in mega vi. Um, But I think at its heart, it's a really good story. I have... Uh, I was slightly disappointed by the way the story ended. It made me feel that the story was less amazing than I thought 
Uh, it had been in the first two thirds, and we can get to that maybe later in the segment. But I, I was, I, I don't think this is an uh, all all smoke no fire viral event. I think there's a very good piece of short fiction that was published in the New Yorker at the heart of this incredible moment where people are saying to each other on Twitter, have you read Cat Person? And then the specificity of that, I feel like, got lost really fast in the viralization. I mean, my story with this story is that, as you guys know, I try to stay off the internet on Saturdays. That's like my tech Sabbath day. But I totally broke it this Saturday because there was too much news and I was too behind. So there I was online on Saturday night. And suddenly, Steve, as you say, a piece of short fiction is being passed around, including by a lot of people that I really respect as readers and writers who don't usually go around saying, this is a great short story you should read right now. So... Reddit was very impressed, thought, oh, this is such a nice cultural moment that we're all sharing a short story. I love it. And then I proceeded to use Sunday as my day to be totally offline, then get back on on Sunday night. And suddenly that we're having the conversation about the conversation about the conversation about the virality of cat person. And everybody seems to have forgotten that what started it in the first place is that someone wrote a really good story. And so and, and even the woman's name, Kristen Rupenian, the author, was sort of lost in all the conversations about it in such a way that people seemed to many people were mistaking it for a piece of journalistic writing or a personal essay rather than fiction. And all of that stuff is interesting and should be talked about, but seems like it obscured the fact that there's an exciting new writer that makes mm-hmm. people want to talk about her. Right. I mean, so uh, on the issue of the story itself, I mean, it is, it's just kind of a remarkable piece of short fiction for capturing the early tentative, totally weird, indeterminate, moments of a of a of a relationship early on in its early earliest phase um and you know not to be binary about it but the woman who the person who wrote it is a woman and i'm a man it was really i don't know that i'd ever read a story that anatomized so precisely what it's like to be on the other side of that gender divide so it was it was it was really eye-opening in a weird way i mean i pray to whatever it is i believe in that i'm not the guy in the fucking story and never was but uh, but you know maybe to the extent that all of us men heterosexual men have been it was an importantly hideous image to catch sight of in the mirror so i'm curious to hear i mean i, I don't want to like massively overgender this segment but i'm just curious as a woman like what were there sort of uh, horrible wincy degrees of uh, familiarity to the story. Well, I mean, I think that gets at the heart of both the question of why the story went viral and some of my questions to you guys about the ending. And I'll start with the former and, and we'll save the ending for the end. But um, some set of readers of the story may have experienced this as reading a personal essay on the internet, a personal essay about how men don't get it that anatomizes what mediocre sex, bad sex you know, consensual but unwanted sex is, I think, how the author described it in an interview with uh, the New Yorker's fiction editor. It explains the set of social forces by which you might consent to sex that is unwanted because it just seems too complicated to get yourself out of the situation where you have found yourself. Like that feels like the piece that resonated, that felt like perhaps it explained something to people who hadn't thought through those mechanics before. And I think probably more women do intuitively understand that or have found themselves in situations analogous or akin to this one. You know, so I think some set of people may have mistaken this for a personal essay, or if not, read it as a piece of fiction, which was serving a useful social and rhetorical point of 
describing what the dynamics of an experience like this can be at this moment in a way that led to a lot of um, kind of prescriptive sharing. Like there was a set of very uh, tony and admirable writers and editors who were like, read this. It's a great piece of fiction. There was also a set of people who were sharing this in the mode of like, if you're a man, you've got to read this to understand how to be and how not to be today. You've got to read this to really see. And that's... Guilty. I mean, I'm in that category. But. Yeah, which, sure. I mean, that's like one of the things that fiction can do and that great fiction can do is help you empathize and put yourself in someone else's shoes. Like, it, as with all things on Twitter, it is, is a reductive reading of the story. The thing that I'm interested in getting your guys' opinion on is whether this is an exciting piece of fiction simply because she was able to so precisely put her finger on that moment and how you might find yourself there and what it feels like. Or because she also seems to, in a fairly complex way, have sympathy with both characters. Um, And I'm much more interested in and impressed by this piece of fiction to the degree that you can read it as uh, an encounter between two complicated and nuanced characters who end up having bad sex and uh, how that happened, as opposed to like how one girl got hoodwinked by a big mean man. And I think there's some set of people who've been sharing it on the internet who see it as the story of how a girl got hoodwinked by a big mean man. And I think the end of the story uh, disappointed me because it suggested maybe that the author's intent was to tell the story of how a young girl got hoodwinked by a big mean man. And I think the rest of the story is more complex than its end. I also think it's possible to read the end a couple different ways that maybe redeems the other version of the story. But I, I, I don't mean to be elliptical here, but do you do you guys have a sense of what I mean? Like there's the question of whether this guy has done anything wrong. Mm-hmm. All he's done is flirt with this girl and text with her and take her out for a drink and then uh, to, to try not to take her home. And then when she insists, take her home and then have sex with her and she never says no. Can we talk about the end here? Should we spoil from this point forward? Yes, I think the moment's arrived. So okay. I think if you haven't read the story, my suggestion is you pause, take 10 minutes to read it, 15, whatever it is, and then come and listen to the rest of the segment because we are now going to spoil the story. So they have sex. He drives her home. She ghosts him completely. He keeps sending her texts. And then finally, her roommate just abruptly texts him something like, you know, I'm not interested. Stop texting me. And he writes one kind of cordial note. It's like, okay, thanks. Sorry to hear that. I had a nice time. I wish you well. Um, And all is quiet for a while. And then he shows up at the bar where she hangs out with her friends. She sees him across the room. Her friends usher her out. Then after that, he sends her a series of insistent texts, 20 texts in a row with no response from her. And those are the, the end of the story. We'll listen to the author read them now. Hi, Margo. I saw you out at the bar tonight. I know you said not to text you, but I just wanted to say you looked really pretty. I hope you're doing well. I know I shouldn't say this, but I really miss you. Hey, maybe I don't have the right to ask, but I just wish you'd tell me what it is I did wrong. Wrong. I felt like we had a real connection. Did you not feel that way? Or maybe I was too old for you, or maybe you liked someone else. Is that guy you were with tonight your boyfriend? Question mark, question mark, question mark. Or is he just some guy you were fucking? Sorry. When you laughed when I asked if you were a virgin, was it because you'd fucked so many guys? Are you fucking that guy right now? 
Are you? Are you? Are you? Answer me. Poor. And again, I don't, I don't, like, this is an amazing story. Even that ending of the story, there's so many different ways to read. But the fact that the guy who in those texts demonstrates all kinds of feelings, dismay, confusion, hurt, hope that maybe he too was hoping that it was some kind of connection. I mean, maybe we're supposed to believe he was just hoping to have sex with a hot college girl, but it, there's like a romantic yearning and confusion demonstrated, at least in the texts as well, but that he sort of curdles in onto just uh, obsessing with whether she's a slut who just won't give her sex to him and finally calls her a whore made him seem made it seem like it was a story about how how men become the men who do that as opposed to just how men and women don't understand each other always and end up in bad situations and i sort of preferred the other version of it so if the last words of the story had been are you are you are you and then it ended and there was no horror text to end the story would you consider that a stronger ending uh. Because that, I mean, that word at the end is clearly the kind of buckle on the story, right? I mean, whether it's the mic drop at the end of the story, kind of. Mm -hmm. So it's significant whether you think it would be stronger without it. Yeah, no, it would clearly be weaker because it would be trailing off. I mean, it's a a very strong ending in terms of like impact and the the kind of oomph and heft and uh, like punch of it. But it's an ending that suggests slightly less complexity. Like what if he's just a disappointed old 34-year-old sad sack? at the end, who is kind of obsessed with whether she's having sex with someone who's not him, but kind of like the sorry, actually really like the sorry in that thread of text where he asks if she's fucking the guy and then he says sorry, like he's curious and he wants to know who she would give herself to if not him. Maybe that's what makes the story brilliant, that 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 all of this empathy is empathy is, right. is so possible. It's so evidently possible in the pages of this story. And yet it's so hard for humans to find it and live in that and hold it in yes. their minds. But but there's a piece of me that feels like and wonders like and, and frankly, the interview that Repenian gave to the fiction editor of The New Yorker, where she basically seems to write off Robert as a bad guy more so than her story itself seems to. That makes it seem like this story may be more kind of an endorsement of that lack of empathy between the sexes or something. I mean, to me, it was not the story is not some elaborate trick to get our heroine to, into this situation so that the guy's horribleness can be unmasked. I just think that's a really unfair reading of it. And if the author yeah. made it sound that way in her interview with the New Yorker editor, I mean, maybe it's just because she she can express herself most clearly. She said it all in the story already, right? I mean, it's hard to right, reduce right. your story to ideas in an interview. And I think what, what struck people so strongly about this story, what struck me for sure, is that it has this kind of this dry and sometimes brutal humor. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, it's Cat Person. It's in the December 11th New Yorker. It's by Kristen Rupenian. Um, It's going to be very interesting to see what the next data point in her literary career is. This is an incredibly promising, not debut, but but you know, sort of early sample of her writing as it as it blew up uh, with a with an audience. Anyway. All right, well, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana. What do you have? My endorsement this week is inspired by our Amy Sherman-Palladino conversation. I think that her greatest achievement as a TV maker was her shortest-lived series, Bunheads. It only survived for one season. It was tragically canceled, and unlike Gilmore Girls, will probably not be rebooted, in part because the cast grew up. It's the story of... of 
a lot of things, but the story of a dance school and these teenage girls who are aspiring ballerinas and Sutton Foster, who ends up coming to the dance school by a strange set of circumstances and becoming one of their teachers, and her relationship with Kelly Bishop, who plays the wonderful head of the dance studio. Anyway, it's a, it takes place in this complete gynocentric, incredible, not at all believable, but wonderful universe of, you know, older women teaching younger girls to dance. It's full of incredible dancing. The choreographer, whose name slips my mind now, is brilliant. And almost every episode contains a full dance sequence, sometimes at the end, sometimes as part of the story that's happening throughout. And Sutton Foster is just brilliant and charming and incredible and to me much more appealing than either of the Gilmore girls. And so when Bunheads was canceled, I was truly sad that my daughter was not going to be able to watch it for years with me. And uh, and when she's old enough to handle the sometimes slightly tweenish adultish plot lines, I cannot wait to sit down with her and watch Bunheads. It's a great dance drama. It's funny. It has amazing performances. Just just do it. It's one season, but it's worth it. You know, I never finished it because sometimes when, when you're like three episodes into a show and then you've learned it's been canceled. You're like, ah, why am I going to get on this ride when I know it ends so soon? Um, but with that ringing endorsement in mind, I'll, I'm going to go back and watch the the episodes of Bunheads I never finished. I mean, the last episode is sad because you could think of it as an ending point. You could sort of think of it as an ambiguous stopping point for all of the characters. But there's so much that's still left to happen. It really feels like a show that's just entering its kind of full flower at the moment it was canceled. And so it, it makes you a bit sad at the end, but it's full of joy. And as for where you can find Bunheads, it is supposedly coming to Netflix. I've heard it's not there yet, but you can watch it on Amazon, on iTunes, and I believe it's available in various streaming services. All right. I'll give it a shot. Uh, Excellent. All right, Julia, what do you have? I also have a television endorsement inspired by our marvelous Mrs. Maisel segment. Uh, And actually, that spins nicely off of Dana's. Um, If you watched some of Bunheads and then felt sad that the ride was going to end and either savor it every last episode or just skip them as I did, uh, and you shared Dana's observation that Sutton Foster is a far better Amy Sherman Palladino heroine than than Lauren Graham or Alexis Bledel ever were, uh, you might have thought, well, what happened to Sutton Foster? One of the things that people loved about Sutton Foster in Bunheads was she's this great Broadway star who's had all kinds of great yeah, roles, one Tony's galore. Singing, dancing, acting. One of those like really do it all lionesses of the theater who was kind of making it over into popular culture. Uh, she ended up on a show called Younger, which is on some completely unrespected network. Daniel's telling me from the booth that it's TV land. I would not have been surprised if you told me it was on We. Like it's it's uh, a show that has an absurd plot construction. But it's an incredibly solid entrant in what Willa described as fun but not dumb and sort of wanting to like have use TV right now for a little bit of a mental break from all of the travails of the world but not totally insult your own intelligence. So here's the plot. Sutton Foster plays a divorcee who moves back into the city after her divorce in New Jersey. Uh, Her daughter's off at college. She's trying to find a job. Nobody wants to hire her because she's a 40-year-old with a 16-year gap in her resume. And so... She pretends to be 26, less younger than she is, and gets a job as an editorial assistant at a publishing company called Empirical, where she becomes friends with the like young hotshot editor played by Hilary Duff, which I never watched any of Hilary Duff's stuff. But she's like a complete, solid workhorse actress who's full of charisma and can completely hold her own with Sutton Foster. And it's just a like sweet half hour romantic farce. It's actually made by Darren Starr. Uh, who's one of the Sex and the City creators. So it has this kind of snappy romance in the city pacing to it and and a pretty good sense for jokes. Uh, Also, if you are 
in the media world at all. Like all of the book publishing references are maybe not 100 percent, but like pretty smart and pretty funny. Um, and anyway, it's completely satisfying. So, Dana, I would I would I'm not sure it will be. It might be slightly too schlockadoo for Dana. It doesn't. It doesn't have the quite the quirk factor of uh, Bunheads or the or the pure originality of Vision of Amy Sherman Palladino. Like fundamentally, it's a Darren Star show, but you just get to revel in like Sutton Foster's beaming big smile and and emotive face, like going through this crazy experience. And and honestly, it's a show kind of about expectations of women at different ages and work and life and family and love. Like it's it's. It's good. It's good. Sutton Foster alone is is enough of a draw mm. for me. I will. I will try. It's, it. I mean, it's ludicrous. Like you could. I would definitely. You could, I want you to go watch them and come back and tell me. Tell tell our listeners what you think. Like it might just be beyond the pale, but it's it's pretty fun to hang out with Sutton Foster, and it's also a hit. Like I think they're in the fourth season, maybe the, maybe the fifth. Like it it's it it's a ride that will continue. So uh, younger. That's my that's my endorsement. Mm. Alrighty. Well, I have two endorsements this week. They're somewhat linked. My favorite Sunday afternoon ritual is uh, as the weekend is starting to die off slowly in that sort of pleasingly melancholy way of Sunday afternoon around three or four o'clock and there are dishes and laundry to do. I put on KCRW in LA uh, and they have a couple of DJs on Sunday afternoons and it can go you know fairly late on the East Coast because of the three hour time difference, but they play a lot of great stuff. And I crack open a bourbon that comes from upstate New York that I want to highly recommend if you're a bourbon tippler like me. It's called Black Dirt. And as it says on its website, it takes the name from dark, fertile soil left behind by an ancient glacial lake that once covered thousands of acres in upstate New York. I don't know about that, but I know that this stuff is really, really, really good. I don't love all bourbons. I think this one is amazing. Black Dirt, check it out. And um, But uh, on KCRW this past week came um, an artist named Phoebe Bridgers, whose m- music I've started tracking down. I think it's really, really cool, so I'd love to hear what you people think of Phoebe Bridgers. Her album is called Stranger in the Alps. So I guess this is a this is a triple play here, a three for KCRW on Sunday afternoons. Has some amazing DJs spinning some great stuff, um, and uh, Phoebe Bridgers' uh, music and Black Dirt Bourbon. There you go. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Dana. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Julia. Thank you. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page at slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash culturefest. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cultfest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our intern is Daniel Schrader. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. The Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network find an entire roster of great shows at panoply.fm for dana stevens and julia turner i'm stephen mccaffin we'll see you soon